I found a recipe for scrambled eggs in the newspaper recently. Yeah, I know. Just put them in the pan, whack them around with a spoon. <laughs> scrambled eggs, you know. <laughs> I've been making scrambled eggs for a long time. But this recipe gave me some fine points about making really good scrambled eggs. And I tried it. And believe me, there is such a thing as really good scrambled eggs. <sighs> Not everyone eats eggs for breakfast or cereal. When I was in China, we were served a brown soup of sorts that tasted a bit like sweet potatoes or yams without anything sweet or salty. Just really bland, brown something. And some steamed buns. You know what steamed buns are? It's a regular yeast roll, but they cook it over steam. So it's, it's got this beautiful round top, but it doesn't have a piece of brown on it to save its soul. And no butter or jam, of course. Uh, some people just don't know how to eat, you know what I'm saying? Now, when we were in Spain, they know how to have breakfast. Fresh French bread with orange marmalade and real butter. Oh, yeah. Now we're, now we're living large. Yeah, I guess so. In John 21, Jesus cooks breakfast. And it's not eggs and it's not cereal. It's fish and bread. Broiled fish and bread. But this breakfast is going to be hot. And not just with the food. Please follow as I read the story. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now when John wrote the Gospel of John, it was later, as in about 90 A.D., let's say, 80, 90 A.D., and by then the Sea of Galilee was called the Sea of Tiberias, in part because of the city of Tiberias. So it's still the same area where Jesus had done ministry, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus showed himself again to the, at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Here's how he showed himself, he says. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We are going fishing with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, you haven't caught any food, have you? That's the way it's written in the original. It's, it's a negative statement. You haven't caught anything, have you? And they answered, No. And he said, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. I'm not a fisherman, nor the son of a fisherman. But do you that are fishermen like it when people tell you how to fish? <laughs> okay, from the left side to the right side, that's going to work. Okay. So they cast. And now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the apostle John, said to Peter, It is the Lord! Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it. He had taken off his coat to, to work, and dragging the net, excuse me, and he plunged into the sea. 
But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, about 300 feet, dragging the net with the fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. See, what they, what they wanted to say was, are you really the Lord? <laughs> I think you are, but are you really? They didn't dare to say that. They were chicken. Verse 13, Jesus then came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my, feed my lambs. He said to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, you put your clothes on, and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will clothe you, another will take you, and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, and who had said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out around among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but he said, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. This lengthy piece of scripture, this big story, has one central question. Do you love me? This whole passage is about that question. It's about Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me? This was a central question in Jesus' teaching over the years he was on earth. When, when questioned about the Old Testament law, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus boiled it down to a statement about love for God. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In saying this, he was quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5. And in Deuteronomy 6, what we have is the foundation for all of the commands that are given. This is, this is sort of like, it's the summary, but it's the summary introduction. He says, if you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, here's what it means, and then the rest of the law comes after that. In Christ's ministry, the theme of love for Christ was something he referred to often in ways like this. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus used these two examples, I believe, as, as examples that would have been near and dear to people's hearts, not as the prime example, but as the key example that typifies the teaching. In other words, whatever it is that is as close to you as your mother or father or son or daughter, whatever it is, you've got to love me more than that. He talked about having love for him. And Peter talked about his great commitment to the Lord. And he said it this way, Even if all of the disciples stumble, that is, if they fall back and fall away from you, I will never be made to stumble. This is the equivalent of Peter looking into his wife's eyes and says, I love you more than anything in the world, and I will never do anything to hurt you. Okay, If you are approaching marriage and have heard those kind of statements, you just keep on believing it's true. <laughs> if you've been married a while, you know that nobody's perfect and everybody stumbles a little bit. But Peter, Peter is saying to the Lord, Lord, nobody loves you more than me. And then Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. I mean, there is no greater claim of, of love, Jesus said, than to lay down your life for your friends. Um... Kinds of discussion like that comes up sometimes with husbands toward their wives, with uh, parents toward children, the idea that you would put your life on the line for your, uh, particularly men would talk that way about their wife, you know, doing something to save their family. It's, it's a noble statement. God willing, it's a true statement. Peter makes that toward the Lord. I will lay down my life for you. Now we know how that went. We know how it went shortly after it was said. Peter claims to love the Lord. In John 21, Jesus says, look, I want to tell you what it means to love me. What does it mean to love the Lord? And there are three things that I want us to understand today. And the first is this. Love for Christ is the response to who Jesus is. Peter understood these truths to some extent, but he had to come to a point where he fully embraced them. And the first truth is this. Jesus is the life-giving Savior. uh, Peter would have heard this teaching. In fact, at the end of this, excuse me, at the end of this, uh, Peter responds to the teaching of Christ. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This is one of the times when Jesus said some hard things. You know, I, I can stand up here and say, say, God forgives sin, and no matter what you've done, God's going to forgive you. And that's, that's an enjoyable, welcome statement. But when I stand up and say, if you don't believe in Christ, your sin will not be forgiven, and you will go to hell, then that's not so happy. 
Well, in the teaching of Jesus, there were times when he said things that were really wonderful and joyful and blessing, and there were times when he said things that were tough. And sometimes they were tough to understand, and sometimes they were tough to accept. And this is one of those times when he said some teaching like that in the previous chapter, and what's the result? A whole bunch of people went, you know what, bud, you're, you're just off the hook, and I'm going to leave. And Jesus said to the twelve, are you going to leave too? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter said, no matter what you say, I've got nowhere else to go. You are the life-giving Savior. He had come to understand that. My grandson, Malachi, loves me especially because there is candy in my office. And when, him, when he and his family come into the church, he's going up to the doorknob, er, 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 locked. <laughs> but if it's open, he's in there and he's getting a piece of candy. And uh, he loves me for that. And I'm happy to get love any way I can. <laughs> It's quite natural and normal for us to love those who do nice things for us. It's not hard. Somebody comes along and helps you out. Boy, thank you. You're a a good friend. What could be nicer than giving us eternal salvation? Is there anything that anybody has done for you that tops sending you to heaven when you die? taking you to heaven, bringing you up. Is there anything better than that? Is there anything better than giving you peace about your eternal condition? I, I mentioned Helen Blom last week, a dear saint who usually sits over here with the, in the ladies' row there, in one of the ladies' rows. A week ago, Saturday, I went to see her, and she was very animated and talking, laying in bed, but very animated, and I saw her this last week, and now she's, she's just kind of laying there. She said, I, I don't think I'm long for the world. But she's ready to go because she knows where she's going. What's that worth? Wow. Not only in yourself, but in others. Why should I love Jesus? Because he's the life-giving Savior. Why shouldn't he be first in my life? Has anybody else done anything to deserve more allegiance and more affection than that? Not that I can tell. We should love the Lord because... He has done for us not only a great thing, but he has done what nobody else would do if they could. Would somebody else die for you? I love a lot of you, but would I give up my life for you? Ooh, Boy, I have to think that over, but not Jesus. The love To love Jesus as the life-giving Savior means you put your faith in what he has done to save you from your sin. If you have not believed in Christ as the life-giving Savior, you don't love him. If you have believed in him as the life-giving Savior, that love ought to motivate other things that we'll talk about here in a minute. Peter not only recognized Jesus as the life-giving Savior, he recognized him as the life-judging Lord. There's a great parallel 
between this event and the event at the beginning of the ministry of the apostles. In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Simon, launch out into the deep. Take your boat. Let's, let's launch out with the boat. And then let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered him, Master, we have toiled, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so much that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Jesus, excuse me, when Peter got a glimpse of who Jesus was, he went, Whoa, I am unworthy. You know, that's kind of a joke that we do sometimes. You know, somebody does something great, oh, you know, and we we pretend like we're bowing down. Peter did that for real. He said, depart from me. I, I am a wicked man. He realized how righteous Jesus was and how sinful he was. And because of that, he followed Christ. Here's another snapshot of Christ way far in the future, still future to us, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. He's talking about that time when Jesus will come to this earth, the second coming yet in the future. When he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The same Jesus who broke the bread and fed the multitude to demonstrate who he was is going to come someday on a great white horse with the sword in his hand with the hosts of heaven, that is with the armies of angels and with us. And he's going to come to this earth and execute vengeance on those who have not believed. Does that give you pause? Does that make you stop and, and, and go, ooh, this is a guy to be taken seriously. Peter understood that. Now, the first time Jesus was here, Jesus didn't manifest that side of his character. There were a few times, you know, he made the scourge of cords and drove out people from the temple. There were a few times he let his his, uh, his justice show, if you will. Many people are happy to respond to Jesus as Savior, but we also must recognize him as the absolutely righteous, life-giving Lord of the universe. That's why he can say this, if you love me, keep my commandments. See, oh, take me to heaven, yes, please. Tell me how to live my life. Now, wait a minute. You haven't been to Ferndale. That's kind of how we treat him sometimes. Does he rule as the king on the throne of your life, or is he sort of a divine life coach, giving advice when you get in a tight spot? If you'd love Jesus, you must believe in him as Savior and obey him as Lord. 
Love for Christ is the response to who he is. Love for Christ, once you recognize who he is, then results in ministry to his body. Look at verse 15, please. And I I don't intend to spend time on this part of the passage, as perhaps you have heard in the past. I know there are some different words used for love. There are some different words used for shepherding the sheep. I think there's one great point here. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon. Now, do you know that Jesus doesn't call him Peter? See, when they first met, he said, you are Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. In other words, I'm going to call you by this name that means a rock. He doesn't call him that here. Uh, It's like when your mom goes, David, John, I want to talk to you. And you think, oh, what have I done now? That's what Jesus does. He goes, Simon, son of Jonah, we're going to have a little chat here. Do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, well, if you love me, then feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Here's what I believe Jesus was pushing Peter to do. And I think this is the crux of the passage. Jesus was pushing Peter to move beyond words to deeds. Jesus made, or Peter made great claims about his love for the Lord, but he didn't follow through. He, he, when, when, when the going got tough, he just got going. Jesus is saying, look, Peter, you said you'd never fall away. You said you'd die for me. Now, if you mean that, then I want you to serve my people. I think there's a parallel to this passage from James. Where's the value, my brethren? If somebody says he has faith, has a faith in Christ as his Savior, but he does not have works that result from that faith, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needy for the body, what does that profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, God is not teaching us that you have to earn your salvation, but what he's saying very clearly is, if you have real faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, it will so transform your life that works will result. In this particular case, the example of works has to do with with being charitable or being benevolent, being kind to people. In the John 21 context, he says, look, Peter, if you're telling me you love me, there should be a result that comes from that. And the result is ministry to the body of Christ. Real faith generates godly works. We might say it this way today. Do you love the Lord? Oh, absolutely, Pastor Dave. Could you teach the junior high Sunday school class? Oh, you know, I just remembered I'm late for a meeting. Do you love Jesus? You know I do. Could you sweep the floor after church today? Oh, you know I would, but 
but, 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 but. How about next week? You know next week I'm busy too. How about the week after that? I had an acquaintance years ago who was divorced. And he was complaining that he had to pay a certain amount each month in child support. And another friend in this circle heard this, was commenting to me. I said, I, he said, I don't know what he's complaining about. You know, he was married with children also, but he, and he said, I never spend less than that amount on my kids in a month. It's not hard to spend money on someone you love, like your kids. And it's really not hard to spend money on your grandchildren. My wife does it for me all the time. I really love my grandkids. <laughs> People who have hobbies, who have serious hobbies, know about giving time and money. Whether it's an athletic hobby or a creative hobby. Kids on sports teams have no problem adjusting their schedule to be at practice and at games and to have the best equipment. Many retirees can talk the virtues of various kinds of RV equipment. What Jesus is saying to us is if you say you love the Lord who saved you, it shouldn't be hard to spend your time and your money on Him by serving His people. So Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know that I do. Well, then get busy in service to the body of Christ. Love is expressed in sorrow for sin, love for Christ. Love for Christ is expressed in worship. Love for Christ is expressed in knowledge of the word. Love for Christ is expressed in being at church services. But if our claim of love doesn't result in ministry to the body of Christ, then we're no better than Peter, who made great claims, but ultimately denied the Lord. Love for Christ is a response to who he is. Love for Christ results in ministry to his body. And the third thing that we want to understand from this passage is this. Love for Christ requires absolute dedication. There's an interesting interchange at the end of this passage, starting in verse 18. After the feed my sheep, Jesus says, look. Here, Peter, I'm going to tell you something. Most assuredly, um, truly, truly, it's that little phrase in the King James. I say to you, when you were younger, you put your own clothes on and you walked where you wish, you went where you wish, you were free to move about, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will put things on you and will carry you where you do not wish. You, your freedom will be restricted and your hands will be stretched out. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. One of the benefits, one of the reasons God had John wait many years to write this gospel is because John knew how Peter died. And so, in, see, if you have a red letter Bible, you see Jesus speaking in verse 18. And in verse 19, you don't have Jesus speaking until that last little phrase. And you have John looking back over time, and he's sitting there thinking about that event. And he said, Jesus was talking about how Peter was going to die. What does he say? He says, somebody else is going to stretch out your hands and gird you or literally tie you up. Or figuratively, he's saying tie you up. 
And, and uh, now we don't have any reliable history. We have, we have anecdotal history that says Peter was crucified. We know he died as a martyr, but uh, we don't know beyond that. But Jesus is making a prophecy here. The key thing that he's saying is, Peter, you will not be in control of your future. Following Christ is expensive. It has no limits. Following Christ is expensive. It has no limits. (laughs) What's really ironic as we come to the next part of this passage, especially, is that Peter had said, just uh, I guess now, actually it would be a couple of months before this event, uh, or maybe you know a month or so before this event, he said, I'm ready to die for you. And now Jesus says, you're going to. Be careful what you tell the Lord you'll do. I'm serious about that. Be very careful. Don't, don't, don't make big claims. The Old Testament says it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not follow through. Peter said, I will die with you. And Jesus says, in fact, Peter, that is what's going to happen. You are going to die for me. This is a follow-up from John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Do you realize that when this interchange happened, Jesus said, now's not the time for you to die as a martyr, but there will come a time for you to die as a martyr. And in John 21, Jesus builds on that. He says, when you were young, you were free. When you're old, you will not be free. And what's interesting is even in the book of 2 Peter, Peter himself refers to this. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, this earthly body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Peter lived his life knowing that martyrdom was coming. We all know we're going to die. The younger we are, the less we think about it and the less we try to dwell on it. As we get older, there's more of that. But the Apostle Peter had the words of Jesus ringing in his ears. Buddy, there's coming a day when somebody's going to arrest you and put you to death for your faith. And he he knew it. Following Christ, following Christ is expensive. Are you willing to pay the price of laying down your life? When Jesus said earlier, to be my follower, you have to lay down your life and take up your cross and follow him, he meant that you don't get to be the guiding force in your life. Now Christ may ask you to lay your life down literally. In, in Togo at the Blind Center, a place that we haven't talked about a whole lot, but it's a similar ministry to the hospital in that they, do, they minister to people who have special needs blindness, and uh, do for them what the government didn't used to do for them. It's a magnificent ministry. But out there in front of one of the houses, there's a stone that's engraved with the name of the founder. 
who had a heart attack and died there, gave his life in the Lord's work in Togo, which really pales in comparison to a fellow named Tim Matchett, who was killed, murdered in a carjacking in the capital of that country while he's driving home from a Bible study one day. Are you willing to lay it down? That's what it means to be a disciple. Lay your life at the Lord's feet. Now, frankly, in my circle of friends, there are very few people that I've ever known. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I can think of a few that have struggled significantly, but very few have been asked to lay their life down that way. But it begins with us laying our life at the foot of the cross and saying, it's yours. You are the Lord. You are the life-giving Savior. You are the Lord. And, and Jesus is saying, Peter, are you going to truly follow me? I've told you about the, the new GPS unit I have in my car, and I love it dearly. love to watch the map as I drive. Watch the little speed thing go up and down. What I love about the GPS unit is I can plug in an address and then I can go any way I want to get there. Because every time, like, maybe I'm, I'm going to go to, go to Salem tonight and, uh, you know, if I were to plug in the address, I could get off the road at Mount Vernon and drive up to Big Lake and, and the whole time the GPS would go recalculating, recalculating. Every time I took a turn away from where she wants me to go, it would say recalculating, and I would always know where I was going to get to, but I could go any way I want between here and there. And that's how a lot of people live their Christian life. So well, I'm going to heaven someday. I'm going to be with Jesus someday. But right now, i got some other stuff to do. I'm going to go over here. And, and God says, you know what? This is a whole life deal. Either you're dedicated to me, either you're following me, or you're not. He has decided on the destination, and he gets to decide on the path, and it's given to us here in the Scripture. Following Christ is expensive. There's no limits. And following Christ is uniquely personal. There's no comparisons to be made with other people. This is a, an incredible piece of Scripture here. John 20, 21, verse 20. Then Peter, after Jesus says, look, somebody else is going to tie you up and take your life at some point in the future, Peter turns around and he sees John. John, as, as we've said before, John does not want to use his own name in here. He speaks in the third person, and so he speaks of himself in descriptors. So here, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's one descriptor, and then the disciple who was leaning on his breast at supper, so everybody knows that's John. That's the only one it could be. Peter turns around after this discussion and he goes, Lord, what about John? I'm going to give my life for you. What about him? <laughs> Can you see Jesus is going, Peter? And that's what he says. Verse 22. Jesus said to him, If I want him to live all the way until I come, till the rapture, that is none of your business. That's what he says. What is that to you? How, how does his living or dying change what you're going to do in your following of me? And he finishes that by saying, you follow me. 
You know, he wouldn't have to put the word you in there in the Greek language. He could just say, follow me, and it's a command. And he could even just say, follow. But he says, you, follow me. He says, don't you look around at other people. Don't you look around and say, well, he's got a big blessing, or, or she's got some great thing, and, and I want that thing too. Jesus said, that's none of your business. There were several times over the three years of relationship that Jesus had to rebuke Peter, but this is perhaps one of the sharpest rebukes. The Lord says, Peter, follow me and stop looking around. When we have difficulty, we tend to do this. We tend to look around and Lord, how come I have to have this? I know I said I'd follow you, but look at that, and look at that, and look at them. I want to be like her. I want to have his ministry. Why do they get to have it this way and I have it that way? And the Lord says, it's none of your business. You follow me. Which brings us back to this question. Do you believe in the Lord of the universe or a divine suggestion maker? I was watching a show on TV the other night where one of the subplots in the show was about the main character, a female, who was struggling with her decision to uh, get married. She was engaged, and she's really wrestling this through and, and uh, has different interactions with people. And the gist of the show seemed to be this. If you're supposed to get married, when you see that person, there will be this instant chemistry thing, and, and you will just be locked in and have no doubts, and it will never change for a hundred years. And sometimes we take that worldly concept of love and apply it to Jesus. And because maybe we don't feel the chemistry we kind of go on our own path. Jesus said, look, here's the deal. First of all, recognize who I am. And then respond to who I am by saying, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I got. It's all there. Even if that gets kind of extreme in some way, just lay it down and follow me. So I ask you today, do you love Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we all struggle with this. I certainly don't do it perfectly. I would not try to fool anybody into thinking that. That's why I'm glad you, you are willing to forgive again and again. But I want to be laid out at your feet. And I pray that for everybody here, that we would aspire to love in deed, not just in word. Father, help us, help us to be like Peter after this day, not like Peter before this day. Help us to be those people who say, I can do nothing less than serve the Lord because of all the great things that he's done for me. Father, have your way in our hearts today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.